Linda today. All right, here we go. Yeah, they are, Jim and Linda are, uh, Jim just flew in today and then he had to go do something with his son or his grandson. And so, uh, and then Linda's probably also on that thing with him. So he's had a busy day. He, he's not going to be here, but let's see here. We're in Psalm 119. We'll read, uh, 161. verse 161, Psalm 119. I'm going the wrong way again. What's that? Hit me in my shin. Hit me in my shin. Hit me in my shin. Let's see here. 160. Yeah, shin. That's, uh, princes persecute me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure, and I mean great treasure. I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgments. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. Lord, I hope for your salvation, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies for all my ways are before you. Hallelujah, huh? Um, you know, I, I just realized that there's just eight verses in all of these yeah. sections. Yeah, you it's know, based I, on actions. You know, I've read this thing, I don't know how many times, but I know. Absolutely. That has eight. Well, it's a musical octave. Yeah. That's why it's based on the octave. So you have eight verses per 22 uh, letters, and so you come out with 176 verses. It's, it's a marvel. It's a masterpiece of literature. If you count the number of times that it says commandments and precepts, and it's like 22 for each of them, but they're not all, they're, they're scattered. It's, it's a, just a marvelous thing. Yeah. I mean, you do a study on the 119th Psalm, and you're going to walk away very, very pleased with what is in the Lord's Word. Um, so we have Paul, might be online. I don't know. If you're here, Paul, we love you. He uh, uh, is supposed to leave the hospital tomorrow. Amen. I was there two days ago, and he was, you know, he was so tired, and he just was, you know, had still taken all these medicines, so he's a little bit out of it, and then Hedika was there yesterday, and uh, she said he was looking better, and then today he was up sitting and eating, so I was like, woohoo, and um, so Paul should be out of the hospital tomorrow, and he's talking about going to the uh, restaurant out on, uh, one of his favorite restaurants out on the key there, so uh, uh, he's already planning ahead, so we'll hope that is the case, he'll he be out of there. She, he doesn't, isn't hungry, but he has to eat. He has to eat, and that's what the doctor's so been weight. telling him. Yeah. It, absolutely, you know, if you don't have a hunger, uh, if you're not hungry, you still have to force yourself to eat. And he has so, to walk uh, morning and evening so many steps. Well, he, he went um, six times earlier or five times anyway yesterday he went uh, twice four i think and then around the hospital and then today it was he's going to have a, i think a total of eight or nine today he told me and I don't, I, the numbers got jumbled in my head but it'll equal to a mile of walking so pretty fantastic yeah. anyway so we're happy about that and um uh, caesar who cut off his fingers who i mentioned last week is out of the hospital as well and i called him yesterday he's doing fine they, they think that he is going to have full use of his hands, but he's got to go through a lot of rehab. So we're happy about that. And um, there you go with that. And then we have Don, who I did not hear from this week, and I meant to email him, and I've been busy. But um, he's going to try uh, another treatment, and uh, he'll give us reports on that as it works out. And we got Tom, who we're also praying for, we have the cancer uh, couple there. And uh, then we have... Um, uh, Graham, I didn't know this. The guy that was in Scotland that was in hospital for so long, I, he got, sent me an email, and he's in a wheelchair, and I didn't realize that. And he's just, you know, he's he's struggling. So we want to keep these people in prayer. And, and you know, there's so many others that 
I get emails about. I think I've got somebody emailed me and I made a note and I forgot to include it today. You know, that's my problem is people send me something, I write it down, and then if I didn't, don't put it in this bag, I'm not going to be able to read it. So anyway, we'll just pray in general for, for all the needs out there. And we do, Lord, we thank you for uh, the chance to come to you and to pray for all these people that have their their troubles, their trials, their pains, their ills, their financial difficulties. And Lord, the list goes on and it is long, but you were there with us through these things. And we would ask that you would relieve them according to your wisdom. And if you, uh, we do continue in whatever the trials are that you would be uh, an ever-present reminder to us that you are there and uh, that we're not forsaken. We know that's true. Your word says it, but just to have your presence more vibrant in our lives during those times is so refreshing. The little uh, things that you do that remind us that you're there. And uh, Lord, certainly pray for the gentleman that I met at 7-Eleven yesterday, and I would uh, ask that you would be with him through this time and lead him to a right understanding of who you are and away from what he got caught up in. And Lord, how good you are to us in all ways. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the gift of this precious treasure. And I would ask that you would help us to handle it properly and to handle it carefully and to cherish it always. We just love you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. And we thank you. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. I got a, meant to mention that and then it came to me and while I was praying. As I met a guy at 7-Eleven yesterday. Ooh, three days ago, I found 20 bucks at 7-Eleven. So that was good. Um, <laughs> guy walked up to me and he asked me, you know, you know, where's the part of town where I can get something? And I, you know, I, at first it didn't clue on to me. And then I realized he needs something. And, uh, uh, anyway, here's here. I warned everybody here and I'm going to do it again. I can continue to warn. If you go to the hospital and they give you things like Oxycontin or these opium based, uh, uh, pain relievers, you take absolutely the minimum you can take. And as I said last week, we have a person that was in the, that is in the church somewhere, whether it's here or, you know, online, that got addicted. And it wasn't that person's fault. It just happened. And uh, it took time for, it, like it happened to Rush Limbaugh. He got hurt, they prescribed it, and then he got addicted and almost cost him his career. And it wasn't intentional. It's that it's addictive. Well, this guy walked up to me and he, he was beside himself. He was beside himself. I'm, I'm here on vacation. I don't have any. And... I've got to have it. And he says, I can't tell my family. And they're down here with them. And he says, what? I, I don't know what to do. And I, I wish I had been thinking because when somebody brings something up to you like that, it's, you, it's, yeah, it's like shocking. And I didn't know what to tell him. And I actually got in my car and I drove all over looking for him to see if I could find him because the first thing he should do is tell his wife, not hide it from her because she will be there with him in it. If he doesn't tell her the money's going to be spent, they're going to start arguing over finances, and his life is just going to continue to spiral down. Absolutely. So, you know, and the main thing is he needs Jesus. I prayed with him. I, I, I said, you need to trust in the Lord. You need to, to get this taken care of. But, you know, you, one is the addiction part. Two is the spiritual side of it. And um, he was more than willing to pray. He understood that part of it, but he is really struggling. So, if he comes to your mind, just pray for the guy at 7-Eleven because he was— he, and, this is something I've heard again and again and again in prophecy updates. I mean, I say it from time to time. These opioid people get addicted. They end up losing their homes. They lose everything. So don't take them if you can help it. If you need to take it for real severe pain in a hospital, take the minimum and don't take them anymore because they will ruin your life. Okay, we're in Romans 8, verse 
eight. And as I have a note here, calm down, Chinese. That's a uh, Chinese use the number eight as the big fortune number. If you look at uh, uh, like any Chinese area, if they can buy the uh, license plate number eight, ooh, that's great. If they can buy eight eight, that's double great. And if they have eight eight eight, then you know they'll, they'll pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to have these license plates because it's a fortune number. Whereas four is just the opposite. Four is the number which the sound of four is the same sound as the word for death. And so nobody wants number four in their life. They, they will never buy a house on street number four or house number four. They just won't do it. So, um, uh, but calm down Chinese, we're not into numerology here except biblical numerology, which is according to how God uses those numbers. The number eight in scripture is the number of, anybody know? New, New beginnings, that's right, very good. So uh, uh, each number has a meaning. Each number is defined by E.W. Bollinger. You can read the book online. It's called Number in Scripture. Just go online, type in Number in Scripture, and um, he, uh, you can read it at philologos.com and biblebelievers.com. And it's wonderful. If you're doing a study, you can refer to it. I'll mention the number 12 in the sermon. Uh, no, not this week. Uh, in the, uh, Is it this week? Yes, in this week's sermon, the number 12. And what does, anybody know what 12 means? There's 12 tribes. Of okay, the 12, 12, 12 tribes, what else? 12 disciples. 12 disciples, what else? 12 gates. 12 gates, okay, so what, does that, what are those telling you? Think it through. Full season. Well, there are 12 seasons. Well, that would go with the zodiac, and that's not to be used in the sense of, uh, the improper sense of the zodiac. It would be in accord with the biblical sense. And I, I will qualify this because somebody online might not understand this. The Bible does not um, uh, condemn you looking at constellations. It mentions three of them in Scripture, okay? Orion, um, I, I can't remember the other ones. Octurus, maybe that's the same, you know. But anyway, they're uh, in the book of Job. So uh, the constellations are real. It's what we have done to misuse them that we want to stay away from. But the number 12, if you think all of those that you gave me and all the other instances of 12 in Scripture, it is the number of government, Okay. Government, 12 gates, there are 12 apostles, there are 12 tribes, and it comes out to the number of government. Don't mean to divert into that, but it's a great study. If you want to know what each number means and how it relates, and it's very consistent in Scripture. It will always be consistent, all right? So if somebody gives you an analysis of something in Scripture and it doesn't match what Bollinger has done, it ain't right. Just ignore it because the numbers will always be used consistently in the Bible. Another thing about um, uh, uh, it's symbolism in the Bible some things can have more than one symbolism, like salt. Salt has several uh, meanings to it, but it will always be consistent in that. It won't be some aberrant thing, okay? Um, a, a very good example is incense, because Scripture tells you what incense is. Does anybody remember what incense is? Prayers. The prayers, specifically of the saints, it says in the book of Revelation, but it is prayers. And then the incense itself, which was used in the tabernacle, is a picture of Christ, his mediation. That's why when, if you think of it, there was uh, the high priest here, he'd go in once a day into the, oh, twice a day, he'd go into the holy place, not the most holy place, and he would do several things. He'd light the menorah, right? And he would, the table of showbread, they'd have the table of showbread there. But one of the things he would do twice a day was to have the incense burning. They always had incense burning, okay? And then there's a veil, and then there's on the other side of the veil, the Lord, the presence of the Lord. What's the only thing that got through every single day into the presence of the Lord? The smell of the incense, the prayers of the people. That is it. And then once a year, the high priest went in. Everything is picturing the work of Christ, Christ's mediation, because what is the veil a picture of? 
exactly. Christ's body. It says explicitly in the book of Hebrews that his body, it says the veil is his body. Okay, so the prayers of the people go through the veil, through Christ. He is our mediator. Everything in scripture points to Christ. Nothing will not point to Christ. Uh, that was a double negative. Don't do that, Charlie. Anyway, um, everything will point to Christ ultimately. Okay, so we'll go on from there. We're in um, Romans 8, verse 8 today. And um, let's see here. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We talked about the flesh last week, and um, uh, there's no logical point to start because it's a continuation of a long paragraph. So we're just going to go with that, and I'll give you my comments on it. This verse here is explicit, and it is obvious. One who is in the flesh cannot please God. It's just not possible. You know, there are some things that are impossible, and then um, is are there things that are impossible for God? Because in the book of Hebrews, it says nothing is impossible for God, right? But that is talking about what is logically possible. God cannot make two a three, okay? He can't make um, something that is silver be gold. Silver is silver, gold is gold. He can't do anything that is against logic and is against reason, okay? Um, he uh, cannot violate one of his own standards. God will never violate one of his own standards. So some things are impossible for God. When it says that nothing is impossible for God, Jesus said that. He's talking about spiritual matters, things like salvation. It's not impossible for God, okay? So we don't want to carry things too far and say, well, that literally says... God cannot violate his own standards. He has created order in this universe. He is not going to take that and jumble it around. And we know alchemy was a hocus-pocus science, people trying to take lead and turn it into gold. Can't do that. Lead is lead, okay? Now, if you inject it with a certain number of, what do you call it, electrons or photons or whatever, then it will become gold. Well, then you've changed it because you've injected something into it. You haven't taken the same thing and just converted it. You've actually made it into something else. So... It, Gold is gold. A is A. A will always be A. A is not B, and either A or B. Those are the three principal laws of logic. You will never violate one of those. Anyway, um, let's see here. There are two possible instances tied up in this thought right here. I'm going to read it again. Um, one who is in the flesh cannot please God. There are two possible instances. The first is the unregenerate soul, the person who has not been cleansed by Jesus' work. Any person who has not come to Christ is in this category to the full measure, right? Can't please God. It is impossible. If you are not in Christ, you are unpleasing to God. Jesus said as much in John 3, 18, right? What is it? He said uh, those who do not believe are condemned already. They are at enmity with God. They are in opposition to what God expects for humanity. So it's impossible. And that Hebrews... Hebrews. Without faith. Without faith. That's right. It is impossible to please God. You must have faith, and it must be properly directed faith. Because you can say, well, I have faith, right? Do Muslims have faith? They have all kinds of faith. They have faith, faith, faith. You're right, but they have misdirected faith. Their faith is not properly directed. Without faith, meaning proper faith, it is impossible to please God. Jehovah's Witnesses have faith. It's misdirected faith. It's useless faith. But it is faith nonetheless. It's not Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Ephes yeah, it's not Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 faith. That's exactly right. Okay, the second instance is a person who has called on Christ, but has his mind on and attentions directed to the things of the flesh. 
This is the natural man being allowed to take over during our earthly walk, something that I'm sure everybody here has happened to them at times, okay? We're not these super spiritual beings that float two feet above the ground and everybody says, look at how holy they are, okay? When we as believers please the flesh, it is obvious that we are not pleasing to God. God says, don't do this thing, we do it, then we're not pleasing to God. The guy in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that uh, was doing something he should not have been doing, what did Paul say? Get rid of him. Expel him from the fellowship. He's not pleasing to God, okay? When we as believers please the flesh, it is obvious, just as I said with Paul, he is not pleasing to God. We are not pleasing to God in such instances, okay? In the first instance, we can think of a bully down the street, okay? He is wholly unpleasing to those around him. There are no family affections, and he is kept separate from our care or concern. In the second instance, we can think of our own children when they become disobedient. At such a time, they aren't pleasing to us, and yet there is the stronger bond of tie of family. Okay, you see, you don't like the bully. You're never going to do anything with him. You're never going to, but they say that blood is thicker than water. That's right. Absolutely. You love your children. You're willing to go the extra mile. If your son is that bully, you got a bad problem, but you love your son, right? Okay, so at such a time, they are not, the children aren't pleasing to us, and yet there's the stronger bond of tie of family. Despite their inability to please us due to their current actions, they are members of the family. Though unpleasing, they are not rejected. Okay, let's go back and think it through. Somebody is not pleasing to the flesh. He is not doing the things of the law. Whatever the law it is, I'm not talking about the law of Moses, I'm talking about the law of God. He's not pleasing to the flesh. He is unregenerate, and God has nothing to do with him. He's like the bully, right? But if you are a child of God, as the person in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is, expel him from the fellowship that his flesh may be destroyed, but his yeah, his spirit saved on the day of Christ Jesus. He is a member of the family of God, and so God wants the best for him. The best for him at that time is not to stay in the fellowship because he's going to corrupt the rest of the fellowship, and he's also going to think that he's doing okay because they've accepted him. Getting rid of him from the fellowship is the best thing for him. That's what you do with when you love your family. You take disciplinary actions, and he who is not chastened by the Lord is an illegitimate son, right? So that's what's going on there. Okay, how is your knee? Are you okay? I've got some pain. But... Okay, well, I need to remember to pray for you, too. I, Sorry, I didn't even think to ask you. All right, so um, uh, let's see here. Um, in both circumstances, there is nothing to say that either child won't voluntarily turn and make the right choices. The bully could give up his ways, seeing what is right and pleasing to those around him. If he were an orphan, he may even be adopted into the family because of his turn to right living. Likewise, our child will probably get over his disobedience and turn back to right living. Perfect example is Franklin Graham, right? Raised under Billy Graham, super spiritual dad, came to Christ when he was young, and what did he do? He walked away from the Lord and he was a rebel, right? He eventually came back. It says in the book of Proverbs, train up a child in the way of the Lord. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. It doesn't say when he's a teenager, he won't depart from it. Right? It says when he's old. So there's a point in time where he's going to turn back to the Lord, and but people depart from the Lord. That happens. But when you're older and you're wiser and you think about, you know, I really had a good in my father's house, you turn back to the Lord. Okay? So um, let's see here. Um, the concept of total depravity in a person in no way negates volitional acts of the will 
to see the good and turn to it. And this is where I digress from people like uh, John Calvin, who would say that that person is a bully, he can see no good in God, and he will continue to be reprobate unless God changes him. No, the bully sees the good in the family down the road, and he says, I want that. I'm tired of being a bully, right? People do this all the time with God. I have been turning away from God. I see that there's good in God. I'll tell you a story right now, talking about seeing the good in God, because we all love to hear stories about conversions. Don't want to give his name because I don't have permission to, but one of the people that watches every single week, I don't know if he watches the Bible studies, but he's a good friend of mine. He's become a very good friend of mine, although I've never met him. And he emailed me this morning. He's a police officer who used to be in El Paso, and uh, he was a police chief. They have to run every year or two to become, you know, state police chief, and he uh, that ended. And so he um, uh, needed to get a job as a police officer because he didn't win the election. So he got another job as a police officer in another town out on the Gulf of Texas. He's very happy there. He's in a sweet spot. I can tell you, every time I hear from him, he's a happy guy. Okay, last night he had an incident. Okay, as a police officer, I have several friends that are police officers and they'll email me with things that are going on. This is what happened. It's always fun to read because you see, you know, how they bust people and how they do this and that. And he emailed me and he says, oh, there's a gang house. We know this is a house where they have drugs and gangs. And, and um, he uh, uh, went there and there's a car parked out front. There's a guy and a girl in front of it. And he got out and it turned out he ended up arresting these people, right? Okay. And I'm reading this. And I'm excited because there's going to be guns and there's going to be shooting and he's going to be a hero. He arrests me, takes him downtown. He's booking him, right? And he gets when he gets down uh, to booking the guy, he has to go through his wallet to you know ID and all that stuff. And there's a picture of a woman, and it's not the woman he's with. He's got a wife in Mexico. He's got a girlfriend up here, right? Okay. And he, instead of saying, you know, gee, you're not only going to book you, but I'm going to call your wife and tell her. He walked around there and he said, I want to tell you about Jesus. And he speaks Spanish, so he started speaking to him in Spanish. And I'm thinking I'm going to get guns and blazing, you know, bullets. And he led this guy to the Lord. And this guy, he said he grabbed onto him and he literally was sobbing like a little baby that he had received Jesus and he was free from the guilt in his life. That guy saw the good in God and he turned to it. All right. The idea of Calvinism is incorrect. He didn't get regenerated in order to believe. He had somebody actually open his mouth and tell him that there's somebody that can redeem you from this life that you're living. And this guy literally clung onto him like a baby and sobbed because he had found the Lord of creation. He saw the good in God, okay? That's just one story. Everybody here I would hope would have a story like that in their life where they say, I actually told somebody about Jesus today and they received him. Isn't that wonderful to think that you're going to be up in heaven someday and you're going to be standing in front of the Lord and he is going to say, do you know that you led somebody to the Lord and there he is right there in my presence right now? Imagine the, the honor of that, you know, forever and forever and forever, you will have been a part of something good, right? And not everybody, as I said before, not everybody is able to talk about Jesus. It's just not in their nature. They, they can, everybody should, but you can always support people that do. And that's why we support missionaries. That's why we, you know, somebody had to buy those tracks on the wall. Paul stole has paid for them ever since the 
first day we open, we've had tracks because that is something he's, even if you don't know how to talk to somebody about the word, you can leave a track. It doesn't cost you anything, right? So this is, this is the wonderful thing that is being talked about here is that those who are in the flesh are unable to please God. This guy was totally unable to please God, and now he is pleasing to God. He is adopted into the family of God, and God can now use him as a son. If he turns back to this bad life, then he will be chastised for being a son. If not, right, if he stays close to the Lord, who knows what he might do? He might be a preacher someday. Might go back to Mexico, or I think he said Mexico. Anyway, he'll go back, reconcile with his wife, and do wonderful things for the Lord. We don't know, but somebody changed somebody's life last mm -hmm. night, and he was so excited, I could literally see the excitement as he was typing. Charlie, 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 at the beginning of the email, it was just wonderful. So, there you go. That's your plug for going out and telling people about Jesus today and that it's not about being regenerated in order to believe. It's seeing the good in God. It's being presented with an alternative to the life you're living. Okay? So, uh, I've said that, nor does calling on Jesus guarantee that we are instantly perfect saints who never sin and who can't lapse into more sin. Categories are important, and acts of the will cannot be dismissed in our theological conceptions of who we are in relation to God. The difference in the two, who cannot please God, mentioned above in this verse, is that one is a family member and the other is not. The change in relationship doesn't necessarily guarantee that our ongoing relationship will be perfect, but it does guarantee final results. And that's what's important, because every one of us will slip, every one of us will fall. It's bound to happen in our life, but the final results are guaranteed, okay? When people say you can lose your salvation, they have a very, very limited idea of what God's grace means, a very limited idea. I, I, I get so tired of, you know, everybody calls everybody else a heretic because they believe differently. Once saved, always saved is a heresy because, hi, how are you there? And, um... Uh, you know, they come up with their illogical reasons why saying, and one of the things that you will often hear about once saved, always saved, is a heresy, is because they have a son that accepted the Lord when he was seven, and then he fell away and he's a drug addict. And does that change God's mercy? Does that change God's grace? Not this much. Not this much. If he was saved, he is saved. Just because he's living a life that isn't pleasing to his father doesn't mean that he's not in God's family. We just went through that with the bully down the street, and we went through it with the, uh, the uh, son who is being disobedient. I know there are times where I wanted to take my son and, and my daughter too, right? But I didn't because they're my children and because I love them. And eventually I know that if I'm a good enough example, they will come back to the Lord or if I'm presenting a good enough example. They don't want you to use me as an example, but they want to have the example of the Lord, and they'll turn back to him, okay? So, there you go. Um, little uh, life application. Does it, we are guaranteed final results in Christ. If you are saved, you are saved. Life application. Romans 8, 8 is very clearly stated. If we are in the flesh, we cannot please God. Some people are in the flesh completely, having not called on Christ. The guy last night, that was him at... 6.59 in the evening, and by 7.15, he had changed. They are apart from the covenant promises of God. Some people are living in the flesh despite having moved from Adam to Christ. This could be us, and therefore we need to be attentive to our new state and family ties and live our lives in a manner which is pleasing to our Lord and God. Okay? Now, before we go on, 
people can say, well, I just disagree with that. This person is living in the flesh, and so he's not saved, or God has unsaved him. Got in a big disagreement with somebody about that some years ago that used to watch the uh, classes here. And he says, I just don't believe that a person can be saved and live that way. Well, let me ask you something. Hi, Sandy. How are you? Okay. Is Sandy on the same level as Pat in Christ? Yeah. Now, I'm not talking about positionally. I'm talking about actually. Oh, I, we don't know that. There you go. Are you on the same level as Cy here? Absolutely not. Everybody is on their own level. So at what point do you say that person is not on a level, which is keeping them or which will keep them from being, you know, in God's favor? What is that point? What is the point? This person is living as holy as any person ever lived in Christ. This person is living very poorly. Okay. Does this negate being positionally in Christ? Absolutely not, because every one of us is on some level. Who is the judge of who is in Christ and who is not? Christ. And if he said that this person is saved by faith, by grace, yes, by grace, through faith, he was sealed with the Holy Spirit, then he is sealed with the Holy Spirit. That is his choice. It's not ours. Our choice is based on what this word says. This person is not living for the Lord. Expel him from the congregation, right? That his flesh may be destroyed, but his spirit saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's all it says. It doesn't say that he will be condemned and go to hell forever. That doesn't say that. Every single person in Christ, every person ever in Christ has been on a different level than every other person. That's but they are from day to day. That, and from day to day, and even sometimes from hour to hour, we are on a different level. I can guarantee that you're right about that when I look in the mirror. I, I can guarantee it, and Hedico will certainly agree with that as well. There are times where we are on a very high spiritual plane, and the next minute somebody cuts you off, and you're not on a very high spiritual plane, are you? Right? It, it's human nature. The Lord understands these things because we are in the family of God. First Corinthians. First Corinthians, go ahead. Four, four, five. Therefore, do not pass judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and disclose the motives of Absolutely. men's heart. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Absolutely right. So, it doesn't say each man's condemnation will come from God either. If you are in Christ, yeah. you will get your praise based on what you have done in Christ. And if you've done diddly, you're going to get diddly. Right? As I said, when we walk up, nobody will be dissatisfied. As I said, everybody will walk up with the, the only example I can think of that makes sense. Somebody presented this to me one time, and I said, that actually makes sense. You will always be satisfied with who you are in heaven. There will never be a time where you say, I'm dissatisfied. That person has more than me. There won't be that type of relationship that we have nowadays. He's got a million dollars, and I've only got 999999 and 99 cents. I want that penny. Right? We, it, there won't be that. But if you think that if a person like Billy Graham walks up and the Lord says, there's your jug, and it's this giant cask, and he picks it up and he goes, oh, that's great. And the Lord starts filling it, right? And he fills it and fills it, and it starts overflowing. And he walks away with this thing, and it's forever overflowing, right? I got my jug. A person walks up, and he's done zero for the Lord. And the Lord says, there's yours. And he picks up this little thimble, and he walks over, and the Lord fills it. And it starts overflowing. And it overflows forever, right? It doesn't matter the size. Your blessings from the Lord will never stop coming. You'll never be dissatisfied because you have an infinite amount of blessing coming from the Lord. So does Billy Graham. He just has more of it at one time. That's rewards. 
you will ne- you have an infinite amount. You can go, you can drink it all day long, and it's never going to stop. I, I'm overflowing. I can't drink anymore. Well, then just let it overflow because I will always bless you, right? You just don't get to carry around as much. That is rewards, okay? That that's a perfect example. That at least to me, it's just something that says that the Lord will always be gracious to the people who have called on Him. Always, okay? An infinite amount is always an infinite amount. Do you see the point? Always an infinite amount. He will never stop being gracious to the people he has redeemed forever. Okay, um, verse 8, 9. Verse 8, 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. Okay, so. What does it say? We got to logically do this. Rome, let's go really quickly, just so everybody understands. Romans 10, and then you go to um, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay? So it says, if you believe, you'll be saved. And then it goes on in verse 10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So you're saved. Everybody got that? That is the gospel. This person is now saved. I believe, okay? And then you go to Ephesians, and here is what it says in Ephesians. Chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It says, Ephesians, Colossians, hang on. Ephesians, there, okay? It says, um, 13. In him you also trusted, okay? So you've just performed Romans 10, 9 and 10. In him you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We don't get it any other way than the word of God, okay? We exercise our faith. We heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, Romans 10, 9, and 10, you have believed. What does it say? You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, okay? So you have believed and you have received. Romans 10, 9, and 10, and you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of the inheritance of the redemption of the purchased possession. That means you. You are the purchased possession, and he is the guarantee of that to the praise of his glory. Okay? Now, he says in Romans uh, 8, 9, now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. The opposite being, if somebody does have the Spirit of Christ, he is his. Okay? What did it just say? If you believe, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. It is the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of, uh, there are four or five different terms used, maybe more, but they all mean exactly the same thing. So, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you are not of God. You are not his. But if you do have the Holy Spirit, then you are his. Very clear there, okay? And he is the guarantee. Explain to me how you could lose your salvation if God has given you a guarantee. He has said, you are the purchased possession. This is a guarantee of that. How could somebody say you can lose your salvation? Okay? I I just don't understand. I don't understand how anybody can so illogically think through what God has done. Right? Now, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 is complicated. And once in a while I get a question on it. Somebody emailed me that today. And so I sent him the answer. He says, do you have anything on that? Yes, I've got a whole thing that I wrote up on it, and I specifically sent it to people when they asked for it. But a couple things before, we're not going to go there now, and we're not going to get into it, but Hebrews is written to the Jews. It's after the church age, so it's not really something that we need for our prescriptive doctrine. It's something that we need for the full counsel of God. 
all scripture is God breathed and is useful and profitable for the man of God, you know, etc. Okay, but it is not something that we need to worry about for our church age doctrine. I need to do this because this is what the Lord has directed to me. It is something that is useful and profitable. Having said that, that is the first context, but secondly, it is a very involved answer to those verses. And uh, I would not presume that I have the complete answer. I have what I believe is a sufficient answer to give to people. But in the end, they do not speak of a loss of salvation. Okay? <coughs> but um, uh, you believe, you receive. If you have the Spirit, you are God's. Verse 9, it says, now if anyone does not have the Spirit, they are not his. So we'll go on. The past verses have shown the contrast between being in the Spirit and being in the flesh. Here we, we're, here we are told very directly that if we are in Christ, we are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Okay, he, he's absolutely clear about that. And then Paul qualifies his statement, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, as I said, it's the same term applies to the same being, the third member of the Godhead. All right? This is our actual state before God if we are truly believers, okay? If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. That is our actual state. I've called on Jesus according to Romans 10, 9, and 10. I believe the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3, I think it is. That That is a, a summation of what we mentally accept as the true gospel and then ephesians 1 13 and 14 simultaneously god seals us with his spirit okay this is our actual state before god if we are truly believers we are positionally in the spirit everybody got that there's a difference between being actually and positionally it's like something is potential something is actual um forgiveness we talked about that a couple weeks ago do we actually have to forgive everybody or do we potentially offer it to everybody? There's a big difference, okay? So, um, uh, where was I? Okay, so positionally in the spirit. As noted in the previous verses, this doesn't mean that we are now glorified and incapable of sin. I do know some people that believe that they are glorified. Not personally, I don't know them, but I know of people that have told people, I've been glorified. Well, I... I've got bad news for you. I don't think so. But anyway, um, so we are we are not glorified and we are capable of sin. Nor does it mean that we can't live as if in the flesh. We just got done talking about that in the previous verse. We can act as if in the flesh. Okay. This kind of thinking is obviously wrong and it leads us down avenues of absurdity. You mentioned Pentecostal holiness earlier. That's one of the avenues of absurdity. Pentecostal holiness says that we can be perfected in this life and blah, blah, blah. But it also says you can lose your salvation because you're yeah, all these crazy things. All right. But to be in position and in practice are not always in accord with each other. And everybody agree with that? We are positionally in Christ, but we are not always practicing in Christ. Everybody agree with that? Anybody disagree with that? I'm positionally in Christ. So I've called on Christ. He is my Savior, and I am saved by him. I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit. Do I always live that way? That's the question. That's practice. We are positionally in Christ. We are not always practicing our position. Okay? All right? Everybody, I think I've got that now. Okay. So to be in position and in practice are not always in accord with each other. In position, we have moved from carnal Adam to spiritual Christ if we have believed the gospel and received the Spirit. 
that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm not going to read it. It's a long chapter, but go down to about verse 45 and read from there down to the end of the chapter, and you'll see. We were in Adam. We are in Christ. The move is positional. Christ has saved us from being in Adam. We've gone from condemnation to salvation. Okay, that's a positional move in God's mind. We are now forever in his mind, positionally moved from Adam to Christ. Okay, so um, the next sentence goes on to state, now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. Small h and then capital H. He is not his, meaning God. This is an obvious statement as can be seen. If we don't have the spirit of Christ, we don't belong to Christ. What is less obvious is the exact meaning of the Spirit of Christ. Some scholars state that this is not speaking of the Holy Spirit, meaning as an entity, but rather the temper or disposition of Christ. In other words, conducting ourselves in the same type of walk as he walks. The reason for this analysis is because the term Spirit of Christ is used only one other time in the Bible, which is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, 1, 1, 1, 1, okay? That, however, is not a valid argument. Meaning is derived based on the intent of the writer. The intent is certainly being tied to the preceding sentence, which mentions the Spirit of God. This is then is known as parallelism. You've got the Spirit of God, you've got the Spirit of Christ. It is a parallel thought. See what I'm saying? You could say this is the Holy Spirit, this is the Spirit of God. Parallel thought, okay? Same thing. We have the previous verse said Spirit of God, now it says Spirit of Christ. He's using the terms in parallel. Okay, so the intent is certainly being tied to that previous statement. It is parallelism, the repetition of a thought to make a point. The terms Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, and so on are used synonymously throughout the New Testament, and such is the case here. The Spirit issues from God the Father through the Son, as is evidenced in passages such as 2 Corinthians 5 verses 18 and 19. So I'm going to take you there very quickly. 2 Corinthians 5. All right, now there's, I want you to know, there is one of the largest um, uh, divisions in all of Christianity came based on one letter of the word, and I can't pronounce it, it's like homosuicius or something, all right? It's, it's a Greek word, and one letter was either an omicron or an omega, and they're, they're both O, but an Omicron is an O like this, Omega. One is pronounced ah, like Omicron, like the word Lagos. And it's not Logos, it's Lagos, okay? And then you have the Omega, which is pronounced as an O. That's why it's called Omega and Omicron, okay? So it's one little letter. They're very similar, but the, how did the spirit issue? And I, I'm not, I'm not going to get into this too deeply because I don't have it. I'm not brushed up on it. And I may say something wrong, and so I don't want to lead you down a wrong path. But that one letter um, changes the intent. Does the Spirit issue from God the Father directly, or does the Spirit issue from God the Father through the Son? Okay, and this giant rift in Christianity happened because of that. It's like Greek Orthodox and uh, Catholic Church or something. And once again, I, I haven't brushed up on this. I don't want to give you the wrong information, but just know that. We believe in this church that the Spirit issues from God the Father through the Son, okay? And I'll give you an example of that on the board here, maybe if I get time today, which is time. Time starts in the future, it goes to the present, and then it goes to the past. And God has given us that as an example of what he is doing in the Trinity, from the future to the present to the past 
passed from the God the Father through the Son into the Holy Spirit. Okay, so having said that, I'll read you these. I don't want to get off too far on that and then lead you down an incorrect rabbit trail. But 2 Corinthians 5 verses 18 and 19 say, uh, let's see here. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that is meaning the reconciliation, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Okay, so let me read this again. The Spirit issues from God the Father through the Son, as is evidenced in that passage, all right, and other passages. The issuing of the Spirit is actually more important than one might assume. When he issues from the Father, apart from the Son, or from the Father through the Son, is an immensely important theological concept to be considered. Here, I kind of talked about this already, but I'm going to read my comments anyway. Disagreement on this issue caused one of the greatest rifts in Christianity. I forgot that I typed this, and so I should have read this beforehand, and I would have saved you this. But anyway, but the Bible is clear on the progression of the Spirit. What Paul is showing us here is that the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ are one and the same. They're both speaking of the Holy Spirit. That's the important issue for us to understand in this verse. It is the same. It's not some, as these uh, scholars try to say, it's an entity, it's a temporary disposition. He's not walking in the Spirit of God as if I, I don't have the, the Spirit of God, not saying the Spirit, but the, the uh, I'm not living like the Spirit of God. That is not what Paul is speaking about. He is speaking about the Spirit of God, okay? Life application. Seemingly small matters can actually carry great theological weight and importance, and therefore they must be considered both carefully and with respect to the intent of God as revealed in Scripture. Little diversions from the avenue of sound interpretation can lead to great, great flaws in our theology and they can also lead to now these were not stupid people either that divided you know like i said i think it was the the eastern orthodox and the the um the roman catholics anyway i i i I don't remember it's been so long since i brushed up on this but there was this giant rift in christianity and it wasn't by a couple of dummies that just argued they were arguing over something that was very very important and like I said, that one letter and that one word made all the difference in the world. And people come there and they say, well, I know that this is correct and here's why. And these people say this and they search it out and they finally say, there's no reconciliation here. We are out of here. And But the funny thing is that it's served God's purposes because you've had these different denominations. If there was one united Christianity and they were wielding all of the power, where do you think the world would be right now 2,000 years later? Exactly where the Catholic Church tried to make it all along, burning people at the stake because they went back to this, right? Having uh, uh, different churches and different denominations and sometimes different ideas about particular things may be bad in the greater picture of, you know, I have different theology than you and that's very bad. But in the, the, the immediate, it's a very good thing. Because if there was one church that could control everything, which is, like I said, what the Catholic Church tries to do, then they would have total sway over everything. And when they departed from the word, which always happens, it happened with the Jews in the temple, it happened with the Catholic Church, and it would be, <coughs> it would be calamitous, right? But that didn't happen. You had the Puritans, they broke away, and you had the, the people that John Wycliffe translated the Bible. Well, the Bible must be in Latin. Well, if people don't understand it, then what good is it for them? Well, we tell them 
what they need to know. And people disagreed on that. And John Wycliffe went and he, he translated the Bible. He was the morning star of the Reformation. And then you get Martin Luther disagrees with the Catholic Church. And so he nails his 95 thesis to the wall, right? And that was supposed to be, the story is, and I just learned this. I didn't actually know this until recently, but him doing that was just, it was supposed to be an internal thing at the college. I want to debate these 95 issues, okay? And he did it in Latin in order for it to stay within the denomination. But somebody translated his words into German, and then it became an issue, because now everybody knows that there's a disagreement outside the church, that there is a disagreement within the church. God worked that out just perfectly, didn't he? Because we're not under the Roman Catholic Church, and we're not abiding by their heresies. So these divisions in the church may be bad theological divisions in some ways, but ultimately... The gospel comes down to the very simple message that you were saved by grace through faith. And then we went through Romans 10, 9, and 10. And I told you 1 Corinthians 15 gives you what Paul says. This is the gospel. These are the things that save a person. All of these other issues, as important as they are, don't bear on somebody's salvation. And the salvation is what is important immediately. The lifetime of study and the hard work of going to Bible study and learning the Bible is where you will say, you know what, I was taught wrong about this, or I was taught right and you're wrong, right? We argue these things. This is the hard work. The easy work is to tell people, you need Jesus and you need him today, right? That's that's what we need to do. So uh, by saying that this is the only church and you shouldn't be listening to any other church, you are excluding people from possible salvation. That's what you're doing. And you're also excluding them from possible growth in Christ if they are saved. So the Lord is wise in the way he has orchestrated the Gentile church. There was one body, there was one temple, there was one structure, there was one time of the day for offerings, and then another time of day for these offerings, and everything was laid out in the most minute detail by the Lord in the uh, books of Exodus and Leviticus, right? We don't have that. There is so little that we are given for the structure of the church that it is astonishing. People say, well, you shouldn't be worshiping that way. Show me that in here, right? Tell me where that is, and you shouldn't have rock bands in your church. Guess what? You know, Isaac Watts, everybody sings Isaac Watts in here. Um, uh, when I behold the wondrous cross, right? We all know that song. Everybody listens to Isaac Watts at some time, and they say, I love that song. It may be a modern rendition of it, but guess what? When he wrote his hymns, it was like the rock bands of today. The they did not want his music in church. That is heresy. That's terrible. Blah, 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 blah. What did they do? They sang Davidic songs. And some people wouldn't allow any music into the church. They just sang a cappella. And this is what's honoring to God. We read the Bible or we sing the Bible back to God, right? Well, that's all gone now. There's a, a Scottish Presbyterian churches still do that. And there's a couple others. But for the most part, that's just not right. You can worship the God in any way you want as long as you are honoring of the Lord in that worship. Okay, God is really wise. He didn't give us one temple suited for one group of people and say, here, you've got to do this. He said, you're the Gentile church. You are a different culture than you, than you, than you. And you're all going to have different ways of worshiping me. But by, by goodness, you're going to be worshiping me and I'm going to love it. I love to watch other. I sent a link to John Holler today in one of the uh, emails I was sending him. I have my YouTube mix going and up comes a song that I hear once in a while. It just pops in. It's 70,000 Egyptian Christians singing Emmanuel. 
outdoors and it is marvelous. Every time I, oh, my, it's doing it right now. My hair gets, because these people are worshiping the Lord. Sure, they're Coptic Christians and oh, you, they got, they're wrong in this doctrine. If they've called on Jesus, they are saved. We've got to be careful not to, to condemn people because of our petty theological differences, okay? There are weightier issues to worry about than these little issues. It is marvelous to hear these people sing that song, 70,000 of them outside singing. Imagine the Muslims in the neighborhood listening to that. They must have been beside themselves. Or maybe they were listening and saying, I love that they're worshiping God. Maybe I'm going to go listen, right? I'm going to join them because all we do is go to the mosque and blow people up. Whatever. Anyway, um, okay, so um, we'll go on to 810. Do we, yeah, we've got lots. Go ahead. This showing the Trinity, I think, is showing the Trinity here. You said the Spirit. Right. Jesus said that I will not leave you orphan. I will leave. I will come to you. Yes. So that showed he and the Spirit are one. Are one. John chapter 10, verse 30, he says, I and the Father are, are one. one. Yeah. So it's showing the oneness of the Trinity, and yet three persons. Three as persons. You know where the term persons came from? Augustine. Augustine. And we've stuck with it. And the reason why she said, I don't like the word persons because it makes it sound like there's a division, but I can't think of any better word. And we've been doing the same thing now for 2,000 years because there's really no better way of describing it. You've got three persons in one essence. Essence. Okay, uh, and I'm so, glad you said that because I was going to say essence. Essence is it. That's right. There's three persons, one essence. Here's one. You know, another example for you is um, this one right here. It's at the last thing that he says in the book of Matthew. He says, uh, and we're going to come across one of these in the um, uh, Ephesians. I'm sorry, the Thessalonians book study as well. Um, it's wonderful, wonderful verse, which maybe I've already posted. I can't remember. Anyway, um, it's in Thessalonians, and it does the same thing. I think it's coming up. I think it's still ahead. Anyway, it does the same thing as what this does right here. It's uh, Matthew 28, and he says, um, where are we, Charlie? Matthew 28. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Well, guess what? The word the word name in Greek is singular. It's not plural. It could be plural, but it's not. It's singular. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so you have three that are one. And that's very explicit. There's no way to get around that kind of thing. And the Bible says this several times. Yes. Uh, think about it. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Say God is in either parts. No, we don't want to do that. That would be modalism. Modalism okay. would say that would be like um, uh, uh, okay, water is ice and uh, uh, steam well, and okay. yeah. No, that 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 that, well, that would describe it. You have the Father, right? Son, Holy Spirit. It's like man is a father, son. Yeah, he can be. And that, that would be three positions. Right. That's still not a very good analysis. Okay. And the reason why is because you're you're using positions. This is actually three persons in one essence. I'm going to, because okay. you brought this up, we might as well do this very quickly. I'll get into verse 10. I'm not going to get too deep into that, but this will help. Ah, this will help you understand, kind of. Second Corinthians, the last verse. Yes. Second Corinthians. 
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, fellowship, fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The, the Trinity is mentioned there. That's right, and he does that a couple other times. Yeah, the, 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 the uh, Trinity is mentioned. He, okay, now you could say, well, it says God. It doesn't say God the Father, but everybody that thinks of God thinks of God the Father. It's implicit in that. 13, 14 is the... Uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Okay, thank you. Okay, I'll give you two possibilities or two, two examples. So the first one is just a triangle, okay? A triangle has three sides. A triangle can't be anything but three sides. If you add in another side, you've got a what? You've got a square. That's right, okay? So everything is what it is. Triangle has three sides. So we will say... This, this is just a way of visualizing. This isn't God, but this is a way of visualizing it that we can mentally grasp. This is God, okay? This triangle is God. Here we have the Father, okay? Here we have the, we'll put the Holy Spirit here. Holy Spirit here. And we'll put the sun here, just so that I'm going to write that up a little higher in the sun. Okay, so we've got a triangle. It has three corners. It has three sides. Now, if we want to define what is God the Father, and what is God the Holy Spirit, and what is God the Son, we would do this. Is God the Father, God the Holy Spirit? Yes. What? Yes. No. If they're all God, but God the Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Bible makes the distinction. There are three persons in one essence. So, is not... God the Father is not God the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now we have this. Is the Son the Holy Spirit? Now you've said. Proceeds from. It proceeds from. So they're one, but they're not the same. I must go away that the helper might come to you, right? Okay, so is not. You're, I, I'm going to clarify this in just a second, so don't panic. Is God the Father God the Son? father sent the son into the world that's right is not okay so there is not but the father is god the son is i know it's a terrible arrow is god okay and then the son is or the holy spirit is god they're all god but they are not one another. I'll give you another example so you can see this a little more clearly in a second. Now, what we want to do is I'm going to move that arrow over just a little bit because I want to throw in the sun is a little bit different than the others. We'll put a circle here. Should be a bigger circle, but I don't have room to do it. Okay, so we got a circle. Now, we're going to say that this is the human nature of Christ. Okay, there's no other nature, so it's a circle. It's not a triangle. It's not a square. It's just a circle. It's one. Okay. This is the Son, which is God, deity. This is the Son, which is God, humanity. Okay? Now, if you were to take this circle and overlap it, you'd have a heresy. Because it's saying that the nature of the divine and the humanity are the same. And they're not. The human nature of Christ is is not the same as the divine nature of Christ. This is known as the hypostatic union. It's, um, uh, you could say, um, uh, anthropomorph anthropomorphical, anthropological, I'm sorry, anthropological hylomorphism. 
Anthropological means that he is man. Hylomorph means that he has two natures, okay? He is the human with two natures. There's the human nature and there is the God nature. They are always, always united. They never over overlap uh, and they never separate. Forever it is this way. If you were to take this circle and you were to move it back a little bit, that would be another heresy. It would be saying that the sun human is not the same as the sun god the deity and the humanity are separate but they aren't they are completely united and we see this in the pictures in the old testament all the time the deity of christ and the humanity of christ are one they touch but they don't overlap and they do not separate and there's a name for every one of these heresies and if i was i'm trying to think of them right now and i, I wasn't planning on doing this so i can't remember right now but um uh, I'll remember it in five minutes while we're talking about something else. But anyway, each one of these is a heresy. The Son is united, his humanity and his deity, completely and forever. From the moment that he became incarnate, that will never, never, never change. He will always be a human. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Christ resurrected is a spirit. They, they say he's not in human flesh. And that's why Jesus was very specific when he says... Touch me. Touch me, right? And then he did something else. He he ate. He's proving that he is a physical being. How people can say he was raised a mighty spirit being, which is what the Job's Witnesses say, when in fact he says, you see, a spirit does not have flesh, flesh and bone. Thank you. He, he was so clear about this, and yet people want to diminish this, because if you diminish one or the other, or if you overlap them, you get away from the God of the Bible. Okay? And once you get away from the God of the Bible... You are now into a heresy, okay? This is how important that is. But really quickly, that's just an example so you can understand the nature of God. He, the Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, but they are all God, okay? There are three persons in one essence, okay? And then the human Jesus has the humanity attached forever to his divine nature. But here's the example that will help you to understand this a little better. You have, we'll just make a line here, okay? And then we will say, I'll, I'll do it with time first, just so you can see this. Time is um, represented by what? I said it earlier. Future. You've got a future, okay? And then we have what? Present. Have a present, and then what? where does the present issues into? Present. The past, okay? So you have a future. There is never a time from the moment that time was created by God. There is never a time that there was not a future, there's always been a future, okay? There's never a time that the present did not exist from the moment that God created time. And from the moment that he created time, there's never been a time that the Holy Spirit didn't exist or that the uh, past didn't exist. It is As soon as it was created, there's a past. There has always been a past from the very moment of it coming into existence, which God didn't come into existence, but time did, okay? Anyway, there's never been a time that time did not, the past did not exist. Now, tell me something about the future. We don't know. Okay. We can't see it. We can't taste it. We don't know what's coming. We don't know. We have no idea about the future, but we know that it's there. We know that we're moving into the future, and as soon as we're in it, it becomes the present. That's exactly right. Okay, so now we're in the present. Tell me something about the present. Our senses can sense it. I can feel, I can taste, I can touch, I can smell, I can uh, uh, hear. Here, thank you. I can do all these things in the present. 
okay? They are my right now, they are my ability to understand the world around me, to understand God, to understand every single thing only happens in the present. That is where my ability is, okay? But as soon as the present is here, it's gone. It becomes the past, right? So the past issues from the present. It doesn't go from the future to the past. It goes through the present and into the past. Now tell me a couple things about the past. What do they do for us? What does the past do for us? Makes a record. It's a, it, we have a record. We have a record of what has happened. Okay, the past is gone, but we have the memory of it. We'll call that a record. All right, and it also, the record does what? When we read something, it does what? It teaches. Teaches us. That's it. You got the T even before I finished it. Okay, it teaches us. And then when we are having a problem by learning something, it does what? Informs. It informs or helps us, okay? So this is the, the, the role of the past. This is what the past does for us. It teaches us. It records something. It helps us, okay? Now, the Father is completely unknowable in and of himself. We cannot see God, and that's speaking of God the Father. We cannot see God. That's explicit in the Scripture a couple times, right? God is in a, a dwelling in a light uh, we cannot approach. We cannot see. Uh, that's um, yeah. That's right. It, it, he is. He is. Un, we are unable to see him in any way, shape, or form. Okay, but we know he's there, and he is what we anticipate. Exactly the way the Bible describes the Father is how the Bible describes, or, or we describe the future is how the Bible describes the Father. We anticipate him. We know he's there. We hope for the Father. Always, we will always, forever and ever, be hoping for the Father. Okay, and this isn't going to change when we go to heaven. We will never see God the Father. It is the Son who reveals the Father to us. He is the lamp, as it says in the book of Revelation. He is the one that reveals the unseen Father ceaselessly, endlessly, forever. He will reveal the glory of God to us. Without Christ, we would, have, we would not have that ability. We cannot see God the Father. We can see what God the Father is doing through the Son, okay? That will never change. Um, there's another one whom no man has seen or can see. That, that means forever when Paul wrote that. We will never see God, okay? We will see what God is doing through the sun. Okay, so when we come to the sun, he is the present. He, we can feel the sun, right? We can touch the sun. We could taste the sun. If we, you know, kissed his brow, we taste the sweat on him, whatever. I don't know what it's going to be like in heaven. I'm just giving the example of the sun in this life. All right, we can smell him, we can hear him. He is our ability to understand what God is doing. Exactly the way the Bible describes the Son is the way that we describe the present, okay? He is our ability to understand everything about what God has done, what he has created, our interaction, everything. Everything is tied up in the Son. But when the Son or the, the uh, present issues into the past and the Son issues into the Holy Spirit, which is what the Bible says, okay, right? Then what do we have from the past or from the Holy Spirit? We have a record. We have the Bible. Who wrote the Bible? God, the Holy Spirit. He is the one that revealed the Word of God to us, okay? It issues from Him 
through the prophets, through Christ, okay, the, the, the Spirit of God is what is doing this, and it gives us the record. This is why I don't believe in extra biblical, we were talking about this before class, extra biblical revelation, and people saying, I got a word from the Lord, and this person has talked to God, and you know, you, you hear a pastor in the pulpit say, well, God revealed to me that I'm going to be alive at the rapture. There's a guy out in California, I don't want to give his name because he's very popular, but he said that one time, I was like, God didn't reveal anything to you. If it's not in the pages of the Bible, you're just making that up out of your own head, okay? And I keep waiting because if he kicks off and it doesn't happen, then I say, well, there's another false one. Anyway, very popular guy out there, but he, he said that, and I just thought, you know, what, are you super spiritual? You can talk to God directly, all right? Christ isn't here. He left us his record, all right? And the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us. He's called our teacher in Scripture. He's the one who will teach you. Well, how does he do it? He does it with the record that he has given us, right? And what does that do for us? Jesus gives him another name, our helper, because the record teaches us, which helps us to understand the work of the Son, which issues from the Father, right? So time is one thing. It's not three things. Time is one thing, which is ceaseless. It is endless. And it did have a beginning, but when it began, there was nothing before it. So you could say the time really didn't have a beginning, right? God created it, and that's everything came into existence at that moment. You can't have matter, time, you can't, in time, you can't have space without matter, and you can't have matter without space, um, uh, without, um, what do you call it, space, matter, and um, time. time. Yeah, all three, time, yeah, that's right, time, I've said that, duh. Time, space, and matter. You can't have one without the other. What is this? Is this, which one is this? Matter. It's matter, okay? What is it in right now? It's in space, okay? There's space all around it. There's space inside of it. If you look inside of the matter, it's just a bunch of space. And the number of, what is it, protons and electrons that are bouncing off the side is what, uh, matter is energy in motion producing phenomena. That's what this is, okay? So, and then you have space, which matter is energy in motion producing phenomena. It's three things, okay? And then you have space, which is length, breadth, and height, right? Can't have any without having all three. They all exist, so space is a trinity also. And then time is past, present, and future. So you've got a trinity there. You've got a trinity of trinities, which are time, okay? Or which are the created world. And this is doing what? You know what it is, is I said it's in what? You said it's in space, but what is it doing? Well, it's moving, but it's doing something yeah, even if I don't move it. What? It, it occupies space. We got that one, but it's doing something right yes. now. Yes. It's the same thing that we're all doing. My beard is getting gray. Oh, it's, it's getting older, right? It's in time. If you take away time, then you can't have space or matter. You see that? If you take away space, you can't have time or matter. And if you have take away matter, then you don't have space or time. And Einstein proved this. What did the Bible say in the very first sentence? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Bereshit bara Elohim et hasamayim be'et ha'aretz. Very clear. And yet, people argued for how many centuries saying that there really was no beginning. Right? There must be a beginning, and Einstein proved it. If there's no beginning, then we cannot go forward in time. You'd always be going back. It's what's called an infinite regress. It's impossible. Logically, it's impossible for there not to be a beginning of this. So you've got the three, and Einstein proved that they are all dependent on one another, right? So there you go. That's just a very quick example of the Trinity, just in case you haven't heard that before. And I, I, there's a lot more involved in it, 
but I wasn't ready for that today, and I didn't know we'd be talking about this. So anyway, it's just to help you understand that God is a trinity, and he is revealed in what he has created an example so that we don't fall into like the, the water, you know, the uh, what you were saying, the, the, the three states of water, or even I am a father. It's true. I am a father, and I am a son, and I am a husband. But that doesn't really explain this in the same way. This is one thing, and it is doing it in a certain way, whereas this one is relational laterally, and then my my uh, uh, relation to my uh, father would be vertically, and my relation to my son would be vertically. So you've got different ways of interacting with each other. This one doesn't. This is a procession. So this is probably the best example of the Trinity, along with the triangle, to show you that one is not the other, and yet they're all one thing. Time is one thing, okay? Anyway, we'll go into verse 10, and then... Um, uh, I we could. I wish I'd prepared for that because we could add it in a little holy more. But God in three persons, blessed Trinity. That's right. Holy, holy, holy. Who wrote that? Uh, his name was Heber. Um, it's, it's sung in the Methodist church. They used to sing it before yeah, every service. That's right. Now they've changed yeah. the words. Yeah. They've changed yeah. it from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to like. Um, um, it, it, they've changed it. They don't want this masculine reference in there anymore. So anyway, yeah. I um. Uh, Ronald Heber? Anyway, his name's Heber. Okay, anyway, 810. Also, also this thing about the Father, he, he told Thomas, he who has seen me has, has seen, seen the Father. Because he is the one revealing yes. the Father. The Father is always out of sight, but you have seen the Father because he's being revealed through me. And that's what the Holy Spirit, when he says, I will leave you and I won't leave. All of these things are revealed exactly as the Bible says. It's a really wonderful thing there. Um, okay, verse 8, 10, we, we'll do one more verse and we'll be done because I just don't want to get too long today. 8, 10, and if Christ is in you, right, we just went through Romans 9 and 10 and then the Holy Spirit, right, uh, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Okay, Paul says, if Christ is in you, this can mean nothing other than the doctrine of the Trinity. It can mean nothing other than that, okay? In verse 9, we read that we are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Then came the mentioning of the Spirit of Christ. Some, as noted, have tried to diminish the weight and the intent of that by stating it implies disposition rather than personhood. However, verse 10 clearly states, if Christ is in you, just said it right there, this is an indwelling, not a disposition. You see why it's important not to read, read lots of scholars and not to assume that that scholar that you love to read is correct because he may not be. It's very important. You get a broad understanding by reading lots and lots of scholars and not clinging to one and saying that that, that can't be right because, okay? And this verse 10 clearly answers that verse 9 cannot be a disposition, okay? It's not a disposition. These two verses combined with verse 11 can mean nothing other than what the plain text shows. The three are one, because it said elsewhere that God the Father raised Christ from the dead, Galatians 1.1. Okay, you got that? So God the Father and God the Son cannot be the same, but they are one in essence. Paul shows us that if in fact Christ is in us, that our body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Our mortal bodies are dead. Disagreement does come over the phrase, 
that our body is dead because of sin, okay? But looking back over the previous chapters, it is certain that this is speaking of our life before Christ. We were unregenerate. We were fallen in our nature, okay? We were in Adam. This body of death is replaced with life. You see that? We, and he's, what, he was very methodical about that. If you are in Christ, you're alive, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, on and on. We have died to Christ, and positionally, we are seated with him now. In Ephesians 2, 6, it says that. Therefore, we are alive and eternally so because of righteousness. This is imputed righteousness of Christ. He is in us, we are sealed, and therefore we are alive. This is what Jesus spoke of in John chapter 3. Remember in John chapter 3, he said the Spirit and, you know, all that. He was talking to Nicodemus. And also what he meant in John 11, verses 25 and 26, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. There you go. That's wonderful. Everything ties up so perfectly from the pen of Paul. It is marvelous to see how he does this. Life application. In Christ, we are dead to sin. Sin no longer has mastery over us, but it can still afflict us if we allow it to. This is what we talked about before. and he, This is where he gave the remedy at the end of chapter 7. Who will free me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord, right? Okay, it is incumbent on each of us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Not in the sense that we must merit, merit salvation through works, but that we must work in the salvation we have been given to the glory of God and not according to the flesh. So when it says work out your own salvation, it is not meriting salvation in any way, shape, or form. It is working within the salvation that was merited to us because of the work of Christ. All right, I don't think, can we get, uh, no, I don't think we're going to get verse 11 done. Um, yeah, let's do it. Let's do verse 11. Yeah, what the heck, we got 10 minutes and we can get done. Okay, so. Verse, that's, my, uh, that's my funeral verse. Oh, good. And you know, it's also the end of a ch uh, paragraph, so I'm glad we're doing it. This is your funeral verse. Verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay? So, once again, we can see that this is not a disposition. It is speaking of the spirit. Okay, as noted in 8.10, the Trinity is seen in the verses we've been looking at. Throughout the New Testament, the Spirit is given different titles which complete the same tasks. In Romans 8.9, he's called the Spirit of God that dwells in us. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, he says the Holy Spirit dwells in us. In Romans 8.9 and 10, it is the Spirit of Christ who dwells in us. Okay, in Galatians 1.1, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Okay, and Romans 8.11, the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead. So God the Father did it, God the Spirit did it. There are three persons in one essence, okay? This isn't intended to be a diversionary discourse on the Trinity, but here, along with several other key points in the New Testament, is a good spot to at least note this. Having said that, we can now note the content of Romans 8.11. In this verse, Paul begins with, but... This is given in contrast to the thought in verse 810, which said the body is dead because of sin. Our bodies are fallen, and as Paul notes elsewhere, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, 
and it is raised in incorruption. And then it goes on a few verses later to say, now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, but nor does corruption inherit in corruption. That's 1 Corinthians 15, it's verses 42 and 50. Okay, I cut out all the middle stuff so you can see, and I was talking about that earlier. 1 Corinthians 15 will explain this relationship between the body and the spirit and how one cannot inherit the other, okay? Despite our corrupt and fallen bodies, right now, we who have trusted Jesus are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. It is what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7 where he says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power of God may be of a power may be of God and not of us. Right? He says our bodies are earthen vessels. The earthen vessel means nothing. It's the precious contents which are in it, which are important. When we buy a bottle of uh, the most expensive olive oil on the earth, the bottle isn't worth anything. It costs a penny or two to make out of glass. But the olive oil inside of it is precious, and you could sell it for hundreds or thousands of dollars, right? That's what is the, the container is meant to contain that which is precious. Like the precious oil, which exceeds the value of the jar, the glory of the Spirit in us far surpasses the abasement of the mortal flesh in which he dwells. Because this glorious Spirit has taken up residence in us, we have the absolute assurance that he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies through his Spirit which dwells in us. As you can see, this verse confirms what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. We're sealed with the Spirit, and he is our guarantee, our, our uh, deposit until our day of redemption. And he's confirming that with these words right here. Why would he fill us with this precious contents just to take it back out? He's not going to. Instead, our bodies are going to be converted into a perfect body where we will perfectly mesh with the Spirit of God forever and forever and forever. Okay, The surety of Christ's resurrection is found in us. The truth of eternal salvation is so evident from Scripture that if you attend in a church which teaches otherwise, here's what I recommend. It's time for you to get up and move to a more sound home. Okay, Paul isn't saying at all these words to confuse us, nor does God provide either confusion or waste of thought in his word. Yes, our bodies are dead to sin, but they contain a guarantee which is in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5. Let me read it to you. I read it earlier. I think I did. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5. Do, do, do. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5 says, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given the Spirit as a guarantee. It's the same word he uses in Ephesians uh, 1, 13 and 14. Erevon. It's a word that comes directly from the Hebrew. It's a transliteration. It's very rare to happen in the Bible. The exact same word is used in the Greek language, which is used in the Hebrew language. It's only used three times in the Old Testament, all in chapter 38 of Genesis. It's only used three times in the New Testament, all speaking of the Holy Spirit, all from the hand of Paul, and all saying that he is our guarantee. Okay? It's done. It is absolutely done. Okay? So... Yeah, the guarantee is based on the surety of God's word that we are sealed and will be given life, which is truly life. Our mortal shall be clothed in immortality. Hallelujah. So, life application and we are done. If salvation is not eternal, then God made a mistake by sealing you with the Holy Spirit. 
God doesn't make mistakes. Your salvation is eternal. When you call on Jesus and believe in him and his work, then you are on the glide path to glory. Wonderful stuff. Now, we're in verse 12, which is the beginning of a new paragraph next week. And uh, we'll go ahead and close this out in prayer, and we will be out of here. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how precious it is. We thank you that it confirms exactly what we can just deduce by looking at the world around us. We can know what time is like, and because of that, you created time to resemble you in a special way, and so we can make deductions about what you're like, and then your word confirms that. You are unseen, God the Father. You are seen and physical and present with us, God the Son, and then you remind us of your glory through the Holy Spirit and the record of who you are and the word you have given us. It is a marvelous thing that you have done for us, and we thank you for that. And Lord, we certainly pray for all of those who are with troubles and afflictions. Our brother Robert back here, who I, I forgot to mention earlier at the beginning of the class, we would pray that he would be healed of his ongoing pains as well. And Lord, we just are so thankful to you for all you've done for us. Look into our hearts and find the things that we're longing for and, uh, and uh, provide them according to your wisdom. And if you withhold them, then we'll trust that it's for a good reason. And we're just thankful that you have been with us throughout the past week and we look forward to your presence with us in the week ahead. We're thankful that Paul will be leaving the hospital tomorrow, and uh, it's just so good to hear, Lord. All these things are coming because uh, you're, you're so good to us, and uh, we just commit the rest of our week to you, and uh, we just love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me back this baby up. Ah! And we'll say goodbye to the folks online. There we, there we go. go. All, All right, right everybody, everybody. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. week. We, love we love you. you. Take, take good care. care. Let's see here. Length, breadth, and height. Length.